Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, hello, Ecclesia, and happy first day of Advent. Happy Christian New Year. I want to welcome you to our Advent teaching series, and we're calling it The Next Right Thing. Because as, as so much of our world has been unclear, for sure, we see this in the biblical narrative, specifically as it uh, pertains to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Is that there's so much that's going on in the world, so many good and beautiful things, but there's also so many perplexing things that are being presented to the characters as the angels are announcing that this child is to be born, especially when you consider the young woman named Mary. And as she hears this incredible announcement, her response simply and beautifully is, let it be to me according to your word. And that for us is a marking, a word of vision for us to be a people who are pursuing the way of Jesus and pursuing the way of simple obedience. You know, I know for me, I can get caught up in big picture conversations, conversations that have to do with the kinds of uh, philosophical assumptions we make about God or what it means for there to be a goodness or truth or beauty in the world. And sometimes what God is inviting us towards is just simply to do the next right thing, to trust him with what he has revealed of himself and what he has asked of us to do. And so in uncertain times, as we face uh, the pandemic, as we face so much that's going on in our world, this Advent season, as we welcome, as we pause to welcome the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Let us be a people of simple obedience. Well, you would think if anybody had reason to be self-righteous in their cause, to be celebratory in victory, it would be Abraham Lincoln. And on the, the occasion of his second inaugural address, the end of the Civil War is within reach. Years of bitter fighting are coming to a close, and it seems like the nation might be turning a page, at least from the overt fighting, the overt clashes between North and South. But as Lincoln, in March of 1865, rose to address the nation for his second inaugural address, he appears as a man wearied by the past and uncertain of the future. He doesn't stand up and give a rousing speech of the triumph of justice or the righteousness of his cause. Rather, he meets the crowd with a very brief collection of sobering words of humility, of confession, of repentance. You see, Lincoln... It sees in all of the goodness of the triumph of the North, a failure of the human project, a laying bare of the nation, a sense of what it means to be human for all, even our most well-intentioned deeds, to fall short of the glory of God. And Lincoln, in so many ways, embodies the spirit of Advent. You see, we so often are tempted to look for the evil and the darkness in those people out there, to see the failures of our world as a product of other people. 
But what Advent is calling us to, to remember and to be reminded of and to immerse ourselves in is the fact that not one of us is, is righteous, not a single one of us. And as we begin this journey of Advent, we are going to begin a journey of diving down into the depths, of listening closely to what the biblical story is saying to us and allowing the beautiful grace of God to meet us in that place. So this morning as we begin this series, we're going to start in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, beginning in verse 15. Isaiah writes, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal and your might? The yearning of your heart and your compassion, they are withheld from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. Why, O Lord? Why do you make us stray from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Turn back for the sake of your servants, for the sake of the tribes that are your heritage. Isaiah voices the complaints of those who are mired in the uncertainty and complexity of his own days. The people in Isaiah's day have returned from exile. They've gone through the great furnace of Babylon and now are standing in the ruins trying to understand what it means to pick up the pieces again. And Isaiah pleads with God, Look down from your holy habitation, from where you seem so distant off in heaven. Would you meet us in this place? Where is your power? Why don't I have any sense or experience of your presence? He goes on to say in lament, I feel like a disowned son of Abraham. Essentially, what Isaiah is giving voice to is the feeling that so many of us have when it comes to following God. The question that we often ask from the depths of our soul is, why does God make it so hard? Why is a life of faith such a struggle, a struggle for clarity about what God wants from us, a struggle for clarity about who God is? This is one of the most profound questions of being human, and it's one of the most profound questions that comes up in my life frequently as a pastor. Basically, people ask, and I think it's such a reasonable and and deep question, if God wanted me to know who He is and what He wants from me, surely it's well within His power just to tell me, right? In Isaiah's case, in the circumstances of his people living in the reality of post-exile, the feeling was kind of like, great Lord, we've been brought home again, but it doesn't feel like we've really come back. The temple is still in ruins, you still seem far away, and it just seems like there is this lingering sense that there should be more, or this lingering sense of captivity that maybe though it's just an echo, doesn't seem like it will leave us. And friends, if that's where you are today, Advent holds out a promise of hope for you. But there is a journey that Advent is inviting us on, not simply into the darkness of the world out there as we wait on the light to shine, but into the darkness of our own hearts. Let's continue reading in Isaiah. Isaiah prays, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the heavens would quake at your presence, as when fires kindle brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the heavens quaked at your presence. Isaiah then is pleading, 
Why don't you just rip open the heavens? Isn't the water boiling? Isn't it time? And in many ways, this is the question of Advent. How long, Lord? How long till you come again? How long till all that which is hidden is made plain to all? How long will we persist in this world of pain and injustice? Isaiah recalls, because he's a person of story, a person of tradition, when you worked in the past, it was so obvious, fire and earthquakes, thunder and lightning. Now, everything seems so subtle or so distant. And perhaps, Ecclesia, you felt this disconnect. In many ways, this time of quarantine and pandemic seemed to be dragging ever on. How long, Lord? Maybe the absence of regular gatherings for church on Sunday mornings have left you feeling like Isaiah describes the sanctuary of the people of God, that it's been trampled down. Maybe you feel like the sanctuary of your heart has been trampled, a place where God no longer meets with you, like you're in some sort of prolonged dark night of the soul. Ecclesia, we have to descend into the darkness In order to see the light of Advent, Isaiah then goes on, and he describes the kind of person who doesn't feel this angst, the kind of happy-go-lucky person who seems immune from this kind of life. Look in verse 4 of Isaiah 64. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. And you might be thinking, oh, I get it now. You see, I messed this up. And while that's largely true, you're not alone. Isaiah goes on, but you were angry, speaking of the Lord, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Ecclesia, if you're looking for the person who has avoided this path, this path of destruction, you're not going to find them. This is what Isaiah is saying to us. It strikes us as a bit counterintuitive, especially in our culture of relentless positivity, and especially in what we have made the Christmas season into, as, as a bit strange that this is Isaiah's message, that this is what it means to enter into an Advent journey. But Isaiah's season's greetings are not pure, cheery sentiment and good tidings, they are conviction. We all have become like one who is unclean. There is no one who calls upon your name. And we run the risk of missing two very distinct but related and important things here. Isaiah is saying exactly what it sounds like he's saying. We are all implicated in this brokenness, in this curse. To use the biblical framework, the works of our hands, our righteous deeds that are not done as a response to God's love or as a reflection of his goodness in the world are what the Bible calls idolatry or what Isaiah calls here filthy rags. Now, if I were to hand you a, a piece of crafted or carved wood or stone that was maybe carved into the shape of some sort of animal, like a bull or an elephant, you as a good modern person, and I were to say, hey, worship this thing. Well, you would say, that's ludicrous. This is not 
a god. This is not anything worthy of my affection or my attention. This is just something that is like a tchotchke you just made and handed to me. It's easy for us to think in our progressive world that we have moved past these ancient superstitions, but we miss the reality that our culture and so much of what it runs upon, so much of the default operating system of our culture is fundamentally pagan. The old gods of like Mars and Mammon and Aphrodite haven't retired to some palatial estate on Mount Olympus. They have simply put on new masks that are culturally acceptable in our world. Theologian Christopher Wright breaks down idols, the things that we so easily default to worshiping rather than God, into four helpful categories. He writes, Idols are things that entice us, things that we fear, things that we trust, and things that we need. He's very careful here to use the word things Because idols are by nature just that, they're things. Something that is a part of the created order, not as the Bible claims, for God, transcendent over it. Christopher Wright goes on to say of idolatry, Idolatry dethrones God and enthrones creation. Idolatry is the attempt to limit, reduce, and control God by refusing His authority, constraining and manipulating His power to act, having Him available to serve our interests. This eventually implodes in narcissism, nihilism, or sheer amoral selfishness. And he goes on to say of idolatry, idolatry is radical self-harm. Ecclesia, it's so important that you don't miss this. There is a grace that is the fountain from which all that Isaiah unmasks flows. You see, the people that Isaiah is addressing, the people that God is addressing here, are a people of story. God doesn't just meet them in the middle of time and say, hey, listen, you're terrible. You're the worst. No, these are the people of Genesis, the people of Exodus, the people who recount how when God made the world in the beginning, he called it good. How when God made people, he made them in his image. He tasked them with a call to be a people that would serve alongside him every daughter, every son beloved by God. That when God formed humankind, he crafted them out of the dust of the earth. Humans are the immense care of God's creative and giving and loving spirit. The people that are being addressed here by Isaiah are people of the Exodus, people who have been liberated from slavery by the mighty acts of salvation of God. They are witnesses to his powerful deeds. They have been called to be a priesthood of believers, communicating what it looks like to live in covenant with the only true and living God. You see, so often the Bible is caricatured as trying to tell us how horrible we are and Maybe at some point, then inserting the knowledge that, oh, but God is great and he's really good. But that's not the story that we see in the Bible. The story that we see in the Bible is one of a primary goodness, an initial move of God towards us at every turn. And then, only then, a pronouncement of judgment, a calling to repentance, a calling to return to the way of that initial goodness. 
God isn't trying to show us how high and lofty he is in order to make us feel like miserable wretches, pathetic and disowned. No, God is saying to us over and over again, I love you. Idolatry is radical self-harm. It will disappoint you. It will ruin you. But you have to choose my way. At the same time, Isaiah's words are clear here. As much as we are the recipients of an initial grace, an initial goodness, all of us, every single one of us has gone our own way. We have all participated in ways that make ourselves unclean. We have all followed, to use Isaiah's language elsewhere, the light of our own torches and found ourselves fumbling along in the darkness. John the Baptist, when he prepares the way for the the coming Messiah... His call is not to those who think they've sinned. No, it's a call to one and all, repent and be baptized. The Messiah is coming. And we miss the heart of Advent when we don't identify our lot among the sinners. Romans tells us that Jesus himself identifies himself among sinners, that God God sends his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. Jesus, upon his incarnation, numbers himself among the sinners. He identifies with us. For us, the call is to see the reality of the world that we have made, to see the reality of the works of our hands, that even our most righteous deeds are but filthy rags. Where are you trying to make it on your own? Where are you chasing after idols that promise you security or promise you success or promise you acceptance? All these things that they cannot deliver. Where are you allowing fear and its false gospel of scarcity to be your master? Where are you deriving your trust? Where are you placing all the pressure upon yourself to make and forge a life for yourself? Isaiah And the message of Advent that's meeting us on this first Sunday is that all of these things are filthy rags, rubbish like the leaves of autumn that have descended from the trees and will be thrown out. When we refuse to see the light of grace that shines upon us in simultaneous mercy and judgment, Isaiah tells us that we are delivered into the hand of our iniquity. This is another way of saying that God leaves us to the consequences of our choosing idols and rejecting Him. But even there, his judgment is not just mere retribution. It's not him saying, see, I told you so. His judgment is redemptive. Look at what it says in verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. Isaiah then calls us back to our fundamental reality, the grace of God towards every person. We are his children. We are his creation. Isaiah pleads with him, do not remember iniquity forever. He relentlessly pursues us and calls us to come back home. Like the father running down the road in Luke 15 to his wayward son, he will stop at nothing to come to us. Even when we come to him with our own mixed motivations, his love will not be exhausted. He will forgive us and he will call us to a better way. Isaiah writes of this call in Isaiah 65 beginning in verse 1. 
I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, this is God speaking, to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, following their own devices. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. Ecclesia, the consequences here seem harsh. But I want you to pay attention. The focus here is not on the sin. The focus here, as it is in Advent as a whole, is what God does for us, even in the midst of our sin. He is faithful when we are faithless. We seek our own way. God seeks us. We run and hide, clothing ourselves with figs and leaves. And God calls to us, where are you? We set our hands to create and worship things that are so much less than God. And Jesus stretches out his hands on the cross to embrace us. We walk away from him. He runs to us. We forget and forsake. He will never leave or forsake us. We set a table for our small gods. He sets the table of his body, of his blood before us. Advent is a call to hear the cry of God for us. Yes, we have gone our own way. We must confess and repent, but he will come to us, bringing us a way of redemption and transformation. I don't know about you, but when I think about the circumstances around Lincoln's second inaugural address, I don't see how he couldn't, how, I don't see how he resisted the temptation to demonize those on the opposite side. I don't see how Lincoln can in any way humanize them in a moment like that, knowing the self righteousness of his cause. It may seem like Lincoln is engaging in some sort of lame both sidesism that refuses to call evil evil and good good. But later in the speech, he names the distinct evils of the slave trader and the slave master. Now, I think what Lincoln does in his very short second inaugural address is something very profound and very risky, and in many ways is at the heart of what it means to beat the church in the season of Advent. You see, Lincoln is acknowledging the end of all of our human projects, even our most righteous justifications for what we do. He's acknowledging that those end in nothing but filthy rags. And he's symbolically submitting the nation towards God's judgment and his providence. He's saying, God, this conflict has laid our nation bare. We have shown the darkness that runs right down the middle of each one of us. And he knows that humility, sorrow, lament for the actions of the nation in the past, the, the actions that would lay a foundation for slavery and for stealing land from indigenous peoples to begin with, acknowledging those things is the only way towards a future that might contain some semblance of harmony, of peace. He knows deep in his bones as he stands before the people on that day that all of our human projects have failed. W.H. Alden the, the patron poet of the Advent season writes this, The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. 
Was it to meet such grinning evidence we left our richly odored ignorance? Was the triumphant answer to be this? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act, the infinite become a finite fact? Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Advent is a journey of the miracle that Alden describes, a journey of God's promises, Him working in secret, the Word of God that spoke creation into existence, taking on human flesh. Advent is an invitation to see the beauty and the goodness of God, and also an invitation to see the darkness in our own hearts. Yes, we will have to submit our own way to hear God's promises spoken anew. But don't miss this. Advent is fundamentally about what God has done. And for us as people who hear the narration of His promises, who hear the beauty of the gospel, our response is simply to repent. Look at the promises that await us. Isaiah 65 writes, For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. And one who falls short of a hundred will be considered a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit habit they shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity for there shall be offspring blessed by the lord and their descendants will be as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw. The serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God has chosen you. God will come to us. The first step in our Advent journey is to submit to God's coming, not as retribution, not as vengeance, but as the call to redemption. Let us confess this simple prayer together. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say it with me. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Let us prepare the way in our hearts. Let us open our lives to the coming of this promise that the world could not contain. Let us behold that we who must die demand a miracle and that the miracle has come to us. Let us behold the wonder of Advent together. We begin in repentance. Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.